from the New Media Project at the NYU School of Medicine and the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, a vaccine for Fuchs heterochromic iridocyclitis. Our data mimics rubella overall. There's a decrease overall dramatically in the case of the rubella, and the cases of rubella that we see are primarily informed-born patients. First this. The Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education requires a financial interest disclosure before any CME activity. Dr. Goldstein declares no real or apparent conflicts of interest. No single department of ophthalmology has the best lecturers in every field. Open Ophthalmology is a meta-school in which lecturers from different departments have access to ophthalmology residents everywhere. I've seeded this marketplace of ideas with my own course on clinical optics. Who's your department's best lecturer? Let me know and come visit us at openophthalmology.com. Open Ophthalmology. Let a hundred flowers bloom. If a purportedly idiopathic condition is linked to an infectious systemic pathology, will vaccinating for the systemic disease decrease the prevalence of the eye disease? This is not an opportunity that arises frequently. In fact, this is the only time I know of that such an elegant test could be performed. To talk about it, I'm happy to have Deborah Goldstein with me today. Deborah, welcome back to A Scene From Here. Since this is a pathology few of us see frequently, let me first ask you to describe a typical presentation of Fuchs heterochromic iridocyclitis. The typical patient that we see with Fuchs is a fairly young patient. Um, We see them typically in people through their teenage years, through their 40s or 50s. And the majority of patients have unilateral disease, about 90% are unilateral. And they tend to present with either decreased vision or as an incidental finding on exam, for, for example, for glasses. They don't tend to develop pain, redness, and photophobia. They typically have a white and quiet eye. They get KP that are small and white. They're fine KP, and they tend to be through the entire cornea rather than just inferiorly in Alps triangle where we often see them. Um, the KP are fine, and they tend to be what we call stellate. So they have these little fibrin arms coming off them, so they look like little stars. And they tend not to get posterior synechia, they tend not to get anterior synechia, and they do tend to have anterior vitreous cells. So again, it's a quiet eye, carotid precipitates, no synechia. They also tend to get uh, anterior stromal iris atrophy, which is one of the really characteristic features of Fuchs. They don't get transillumination defects like we see in herpetic disease, but they lose the anterior stroma. And is this the etiology of the heterochromia? Yeah, it is. They they lose anterior stroma. So when you look at the iris, it looks kind of featureless. They lose the normal crypts and architecture. And over time, with loss of stroma, the effective eye usually gets lighter. It's easiest to see in blue-eyed patients where the blue eye, a blue eye tends to be bluer um, or more intensely blue, and brown eyes tend to look less brown. Um, although over time, when you get profound loss of anterior stroma, you could even get the effect of eye looking darker because you're seeing the posterior pigment epithelium. And how common is this condition? It's not that common. In our series, it was between 35 to 5% of all uveitis cases, depending on the decade we looked at. It tends to be actually very often underdiagnosed and overtreated. 
So the typical patient I have with Fuchs went to um, his eye doctor either for blurred vision or just for a change in glasses. He was found to have inflammation in the eye and is put on very frequent topical steroids. The steroids don't tend to affect the course of the disease, so then the steroid drops get increased in frequency. And so they come to me for a non-responsive uveitis very often on very, very frequent topical steroids so that they, the diagnosis has been missed and they've been over-treated with steroids, which don't tend to do anything for the course of the disease except for increase the risk of cataracts and glaucoma. Um, and I don't think I mentioned this when I talked about the classical picture of the disease, but cataract is very common in these patients, typically posterior subcapsular cataract, and also glaucoma is very frequent, probably about up to one-third of patients get glaucoma, and at least 70% get cataract. Actually, in my practice, I think everyone eventually develops a cataract. But are those complications secondary to the pathology or secondary to the treatment regimen? They're actually secondary to both, because in my patients of Fuchs, whom I diagnosed initially and never put on topical steroids, they still get cataract and glaucoma. But treating them with topical steroids will just increase the rate and the frequency of that outcome. Now, you mentioned before that this condition tends to present at a younger age. Is it that the pathology burns out in older people? That's a great question. And I don't know the answer to that. It may be that over time, the KP just become less pronounced and the cataract is less surprising in an older patient. I don't know. In our study, the average age of patients was 43. And certainly, I've seen this in children I don't know if we're not diagnosing it in older patients because it tends to burn out or because they've already been diagnosed because by the age of 70, most people have had an eye exam. Now, if steroids are not typical therapy for this condition, what is conventional therapy for Fuchs heterochromic iridocyclitis? Well, we don't tend to treat the uveitis. There are rare exceptions if patients get tons of KP in the visual axis that are blurring vision or tons of floaters that are making them crazy, we may try steroids. But typically, we don't treat these patients, and all that we do is discuss with them their risks of cataract and glaucoma. We follow them at least annually for an intraocular pressure check because, as I said, they're at higher risk, and we tell them that they are at risk for development of cataracts. So pretty much we, we use benign neglect when treating these patients. We follow them, but we don't tend to treat them until such time as they need treatment for their glaucoma or their cataract. And uh, the glaucoma tends to be difficult to treat. Very often, the patients fail glaucoma drops and end up requiring glaucoma surgery. It's kind of an interesting glaucoma. They can have these abnormal vessels in the angle, but they don't cause angle closure. So it's an open-angle glaucoma, but it responds quite poorly often to topical antihypertensive drops. And then we treat the cataract the way we treat any patient with a cataract, I used to pretreat these patients with uh, oral steroids before surgery the way I do for my normal uveitis patients, but I no longer do that. I um, will do a normal um, fecal multiplication with a foldable lens, go clear cornea, completely normal cataract. The only thing that they're at risk at, they're at higher risk of hyphema. Um, they can bleed from those abnormal angle vessels, so they have a higher chance of intra- or post-op hyphema, and I warn them about that. But otherwise, the cataract surgery is really the same as regular cataract surgery. Prior to this study, what did we know about the relationship between rubella and Fuchs heterochromic iridocyclitis? Well, this study was prompted by two previous studies. In uh, 2004, um, a group um, led by Quentin found evidence of intraocular production of antibodies to rubella 
in their Fuchs patients. They had 52 patients with Fuchs cyclitis, and there was intraocular antibody production against rubella in all of their cases. And they also looked at 28 patients. Uh, they looked at the aqueous of 28 patients and found that five of the 28 had a positive PCR for rubella. And then subsequently in 2006, another group reported also the intraocular production of antibodies to rubella in 13 of 14 of their Fuchs patients. So this suggested a link already between Fuchs and rubella. And it was really when our group read the second paper and then went back and read the first paper that we thought about our patients with Fuchs and realized that, yeah, we are seeing a decrease in number of patients with Fuchs. And it seemed to us that a higher percentage of these patients were foreign-born rather than U.S.-born. So we decided to undertake the study to see if we had epidemiologic support for these two um, clinical studies. One of the things that you talked about in the paper was the effect of the rubella vaccination program. Can I get you to flesh out a little bit what that program was? Sure. It is a program that was started in 1969 in this country, um, aiming ultimately to immunize the entire population. Um, this began shortly after the last major rubella epidemic, was, which was in 1964-1965. And the aim was to immunize everybody, but particularly women of childbearing age, to decrease the incidence of congenital rubella syndrome. So initially, children between one year of age and puberty were targeted, and it was a two-dose vaccination program, which is what we have now. So kids today get an MMR, their first one at about one year, and their second one between age four to age six. Deborah, can I get you to describe the design of this study? Okay, well, we have a database of patients seen at our uveitis service. So we went through the database of all patients seen at our service between 1985 and 2005. And we looked for patients with fugue serotal cyclitis, and we had two control groups, um, chronic cyclitis that was idiopathic, so we took out the JIA patients and all the other known diagnoses, and then idiopathic chronic granulomatous cyclitis. We wanted to take two diseases that we didn't feel were infectious and without known etiologies. And we took all the patients with those three diagnoses, so Fuchs, idiopathic chronic cyclitis, and idiopathic chronic granulomatous cyclitis, and grouped them by decade of birth. And then we looked at the percentage of each condition over time and the country of origin of the patients and how that changed over time. Deborah, what were the results of this study? What were your findings? We had um, 3,856 patients in our database, so that was a lot of charts to go through. And what we found was the percentages of patients in each group were similar for those born between 1919 and 1958. So before we had to think about the introduction of the rubella vaccination program, there were roughly the same percentage of patients with Fuchs cyclitis and our two control groups. Between 1959 and 1968, so that's patients with, who were born between 1959 and 1968, there was a 65% reduction in percentage of patients with FHI, with Fuchs cyclitis, but not the other groups. And then if we look at the subsequent decade, 1969 to 1978, there was an additional 40% drop. So that we saw a decrease over time of patients in our practice with fucoserotal cyclitis. And when we looked at the patients that were foreign-born, the percentage increased over time. In the decades before the vaccination program, it was um, the numbers were 42 to 55%, and this dropped to 25% of patients. 
So, for example, those born between 1939 and 1948, we had 16 patients born in the United States with Fuchs and five that were foreign-born. When we look at the decades starting from 1959, there were four born in the U.S. and five that were foreign-born. And for those from 1969 to 1978 as a date of birth, we only had four patients total, and half of those were born in the States and half of them were born elsewhere. So we, we've seen a dramatic decrease in the number of cases of Fuchs and the increase in the percentage of those patients who were foreign-born. Now, if the rubella vaccine was introduced in 1969, why do you think that you observed a decrease in the prevalence of Fuchs heterochromic erosyclitis in patients born between 1958 and 1969? That's to say, before the inception of the vaccination program. Well, that's a great question. And I actually had to think about that because I was looking at the numbers and couldn't understand them. But actually, the initial targets of the vaccination program were children between the age of one and puberty. So that actually accounted for all children born after 1957. So when you look at the data, if we were only targeting one-year-olds, the numbers wouldn't make sense. But since the initial target was children between age one and puberty, this would include patients in that cohort. Now, if the vaccination program, the rubella vaccination program, resulted in Fuchs representing a smaller portion of the total uveitis population, we would not expect a concomitant decrease in other etiologies for uveitis. What did you find over this period? Well, you're correct. We actually did not see any decrease in the patients with our two idiopathic control groups, and we also did not see any increase in the foreign-born patients in those two groups, because it might have been that we just had more foreign-born patients in our practice, which might have accounted for the increase in foreign-born patients with Fuchs. But in fact, the number stayed fairly stable for both percentages of patients with the two idiopathic control groups and percentage of foreign-born patients within those two idiopathic groups. Now, presumably, the impetus for starting the vaccination program was to decrease the incidence of rubella, how did your findings of the decrease in Fuchs heterochromic erodocyclitis compare with the decrease in rubella for the same cohort? Um, well, that's a great question. We really rarely see rubella in this country now. And if we look at patients with rubella before the mid-90s, the majority of rubella patients in this country were, was thought to occur in U.S.-born patients. But we looked at the numbers from 1998 and 1999, and the majority of rubella cases occurred in foreign-born individuals. So our data mimics rubella overall. There's a decrease overall dramatically in the cases of rubella, and the cases of rubella that we see are primarily in foreign-born patients. Now, in these foreign countries, similar vaccination programs against rubella were begun, although generally at a later date than they were begun in the U.S., did you see any concomitant decrease in incidence of Fuchs heterochromic erodocyclitis that correlated with the onset of these foreign vaccination programs? You know, I think we are already seeing that and we'll probably continue to see more of that. Certainly, we've had a dramatic decrease in the Fuchs that we see. And even though the percentage of patients that we see who are foreign-born has increased, the absolute number is still decreased. And in the last cohorts, there were only one or two patients. We were able to obtain country of origin for the majority of patients in our series, but the data on how the vaccines were implemented in different countries was a little sketchy. For some countries, 
we couldn't find out what percentage of the population was actually reached, how the targeting took place. So I don't really have enough data to comment on it, but my thoughts are that what we've seen in the States will be mirrored in other countries. Deborah, this is a really interesting study, and I've been following this topic since the the first papers came out, suggesting a link between rubella and Fuchs heterochromic iridocyclitis. Let me ask you, are there any recommendations that you make for those of us in, in clinical practice, other than to show the benefit of the rubella vaccination program? Well, I think that's it. I don't think that we can make any clinical recommendations on how we diagnose or treat Fuchs based on this data. Certainly, I am a proponent of parents having their kids vaccinated, and I think this is just one more piece of evidence suggesting that people should have their children vaccinated. What I think is interesting, though, is that this study is able to use epidemiologic data to support clinical observations, which I always think is a nice way of getting corroborating evidence. And I think for me, the most exciting thing about this study is that so much of what we do in uveitis or so much of what we see in uveitis is idiopathic. So even though I'm a so-called uveitis expert, I have to say I have no idea dozens of times a day to patients. And it gets frustrating. So when we do research like this, it can maybe increase the percentage of patients for which we think we understand the etiology. So this helps us because patients like to know an etiology, even if it doesn't change their outcome. And for me, I get to say, I don't know, a couple of less times a day, which is pretty nice. Deborah Goldstein, thank you so much. Thanks so much. Deborah Goldstein is Associate Professor of Ophthalmology and Director of the Uvieta Service and Ocular Aid Service in the Department of Ophthalmology and Visual Sciences at the University of Illinois at Chicago in Chicago, Illinois. Her paper, Epidemiologic Relationship Between Fuchs Heterochromic Erdocyclitis and the United States Rubella Vaccination Program, appears in the September 2007 issue of the American Journal of Ophthalmology. Ask questions of Dr. Goldstein or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Call our listener response lines in the United States-style area code 646-808-0231, in the United Kingdom dial 020-7558-8275, or Skype JYoungMD. Those numbers can be found on our website, asseenfromhere.com. As Seen From Here is a production of the new media project of the NYU School of Medicine and the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.